0: Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
1: Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance, and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number eight in our series for 2018 and today's date is Friday, April the 6th. First of all, I talked to Ryan Gracie, Group Head of Marketing of diversified e-commerce business Catch Group, which has launched into New Zealand following its acquisition of iconic New Zealand children's wear brand Pumpkin Patch last year. And then I talked to economist Stephen Koulas, all about what we can expect in the forthcoming budget. But first, let's talk to Ryan Gracie. Now, Ryan Gracie, you are the head... Group Head of Marketing at The Catch Group, and you guys have just expanded into New Zealand.
2: Uh, we sure have.
1: That's right. Uh, you've you've acquired the iconic New Zealand children's wear brand Pumpkin Patch uh, last year, and uh, now, you've, now you've gone further.
2: Yes, yes. So we acquired that mid uh, to late last year, and that's been a success. We're selling Pumpkin Patch online, so we have a, a team of designers in-house now, which is something that's a little bit foreign to Catch, but... Uh, they're doing an amazing job uh, churning out uh, new ranges all the time, and, and yeah, we're focusing on with Pumpkin Patch, and we've just expanded to New Zealand with Catch of the Day.
1: That's fantastic. Now, uh, I'm, I'm intrigued by this, because, I mean, mm-hmm. why why New Zealand?
2: Well, we've been in New Zealand selling our products on Trade Me for uh, about 12 months, and so that was our, our dipping the toes and testing the waters, and and working out whether or not there was an appetite for, for our products over there, and it turns out that there is. So the New Zealanders love a deal, as do Aussies. And uh, through that test phase, we recognise that there's definitely a market that we can tap into. So taking the the catch proposition to New Zealand seemed like a, a logical next step.
1: What did it in, What did it involve uh, doing that crossover to New Zealand? Well,
2: obviously there was the testing phase, and and we did that through TradeMe, which is the marketplace over there. Very pro- um, popular marketplace uh setting up the logistics has been one of the biggest hurdles for us so just making sure that we had our supply chain in order and ready to deliver because we we do pride ourselves on fast delivery and that's an expectation now with online shoppers uh, but then just making sure that the the market had a a for this sort of deal uh, we are uh, essentially a a discounter of big brands and and just um testing that New Zealanders had that same appetite as Aussies do for, for the big springs at the lowest prices. And, and look, it, it turns out that they definitely do. So um, uh, when it comes to building the website, then the catchoftheday.co.nz site is a replica uh, of the infrastructure that drives catch.com.au. So that, that deploying that was relatively simple. Uh, we have a, a strong development team downstairs uh, who worked for a few months to customise that to the New Zealand audience. Uh, and it's driven by uh, merchandised events that we create in-house every day.
1: I'd imagine getting the logistics right would have been a major, major issue because you need speed of delivery for a market. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So so we are Australia Post's
2: largest customer in Australia, but um, obviously that's a hurdle when you want to go into New Zealand. So uh, we partnered with DHL to make that happen. And for us, it was about the, the obviously the trade-off between speed and price. Uh, we do want to offer low delivery costs, and we've been able to strike up that nexus between speed and price uh, where customers get a great deal. So,
1: so uh, with the logistics, would, would there be a bit extra to pay because of... Uh... No, 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 not really. So when you look at the, the distance between uh, Melbourne and New
2: Zealand, it's comparable, well, actually a shorter distance than Melbourne and Perth. So for us, uh, that infrastructure that DHL has got in place is is perfect for online deliveries and uh the costs are quite low.
1: How different a market is New Zealand from Australia?
2: I think they're very similar actually uh, we We almost view it as an extension of Australia in terms of another state that we've been trying to enter into uh, the the way people interact online is similar our cultures our values our our, our structure and um, also our incomes and uh, if you did a Pestel on the, on the two countries, they, they seem very, very similar. It would be hard to, to delineate between the two. So, um, for us, it's just a natural extension.
1: Well, it would also make a lot of sense because, frankly, they have a much better uh, uh, broadband system than Australia's.
2: <laughs> the irony of it all, yes, yeah, you're right. I think most countries have a much better broadband system than us. So, uh, that's probably why they have a huge adoption rate of online shopping.
1: Are there any differences with the Australian offerings?
2: Uh, yes, yeah, so Australia, um, on, the, on catch.com.au, we have 1.2 million products. Now, we have a core range of about 30,000 products that we stock in our warehouse um, in Melbourne. Uh, there are 30,000 core range that are offered all day, every day. The other 1.17 uh, million would be from marketplace sellers who are situated uh, around Australia and the globe. Now, they distribute the uh, product from their warehouse, so they fulfil and um, uh, operate from our marketplace. Now, we won't be offering marketplace products on catchoftheday.co.nz just yet. Uh, There's obviously a whole logistical arrangement that has to be put in place before that can happen. So, uh, look, 30,000 products on catchoftheday.co.nz, 1.2 million in Australia.
1: What are the products? What what are the key products you sell? Oh,
2: look, we, we operate across all verticals, so from groceries to beauty to sports... Um, books, toys, kids, baby—we've we, got, we've got products from all of those key categories. Uh, groceries is a, a huge um, category for us in Australia, as a uh, the sporting products. And when you look at the, the price of runners that we sell in uh, comparison to the, the larger retailers. Then uh, everyone comes to us to get a bargain on, on cheap shoes. Uh, but we're also strong in fashion, beauty. We have all the these brands in beauty. So there, there's something. Uh, without sounding too cliché, there really is something for everyone on the site. And up until June of last year, Catch uh, Australia only had 30,000 products on the site as well. Um, the marketplace has been something that we've really only launched in the last uh, six to eight months.
1: And I'd imagine, though, groceries, you couldn't do groceries to New Zealand, but uh, well, all the other th- we're not talking.
2: Could. Yeah, we're not talking fresh food, though. So um, uh, packaged food is, is fine.
1: Tell me, I mean, the online shopping market in Australia has really taken off. I mean, yeah. where do you see it travelling now, particularly with Amazon setting up in Australia?
2: Yeah, look, uh, the, the Amazon effect has not really turned out to be everything that uh, perhaps consumers had hoped. And the, the dire uh, warnings that we all received about uh, retailers going broke, et cetera, hasn't really... Um, come to life so uh, look at what it has done though is brought about a a stack of attention to online shopping and perhaps uh, the rise of it we we know that it's something that increases year on year we 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 see this in our customer base at the moment we have over 3.5 million customers who have shopped through catch and obviously that that grows year on year Uh, we're seeing that more and more people are uh, um, showcasing by going into store and then purchasing online. They, they, they go home, they research the product that they're after, they find the best price, the best delivery options and shop with someone that they know and trust. So we're operating in that space. And for us, there is a blue sky there of growth where we really only tapped into, let's say, there's 8% of the market that are shopping online. Then we know that there's 92% to go. Uh, so for us, it's uh, good times ahead.
1: Is there a particular demographic in that market?
2: Yeah, look, we we really target the value seekers. So people who are shopping on our site are after those those brands that they normally uh, they aspire to own, but they generally can't afford. So uh, we, that that would be the model of catch, I suppose, big brands, low prices, uh, and people are coming to us to to, to snatch a bargain. Uh, so really, it's the, the, the urban dwellers, the the bargain hunters, the value seekers who are coming to our site to 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 shop. And they're shopping on regular occasions. They're coming more than uh, five or six times per year.
1: So so they keep coming back. So you have lots of repeat customers.
2: Yeah, lots of repeat customers. For us, the, the retention of a customer is far more value, valuable than just the acquisition of a customer. If we can get a customer uh, making repeat purchases, then obviously that's the, the panacea to a business. Um, then, that, then this is what we're after. So by offering uh, such a breadth of products uh, and all at very low prices, then we find that people can shop. Uh, they might come in to buy some groceries one day and, and leave with some mascara. So it, it all dovetails into itself.
1: Well, I have to ask you finally, I mean, you've expanded to New Zealand. Mm. Are you planning any further overseas expansions? Oh, look, at the moment, we really just want to
2: test and, and prove that we can expand overseas. So New Zealand being uh, perhaps the lowest hanging fruit when it, when it comes to that international expansion. Look, everything's always on the table. We're always considering our options. But at the moment, we really just want to uh, prove ourselves in New Zealand, uh, make that happen, make it successful, as we have been in Australia, and then, and then look at other territories as we go.
1: So maybe expanding to Asia, for example, place like Singapore or
2: Indonesia? Yeah, that would be the logical next step, I think. If we were to consider any of, any other countries, then they would be the, the logical next step.
1: Well, Ryan, it's been a delight talking to you. Thank you very much for your time.
2: Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you. And now let's talk to economist Stephen Kekoulis. Stephen Kekoulis, we have a budget coming up and there's all sorts of promises of giveaways because it will be an election budget. What's your view about that? Yeah, with
0: the election due either late this year or early in 2019, so roughly within the next 12 months, it's going to be one of those ones where the coalition parties, well behind in the public opinion polls, will be looking to throw a few sweeteners out there. Look, we already know about the company tax uh, cuts, which are still to get through the Senate. They're going to still be in there, from what we can gather. A little bit of good news on the iron ore and coal prices, probably giving them a better starting point. And if you believe what the Prime Minister and Treasurer have been saying over recent weeks, there could well be a promise of some income tax cuts in there, as they try to sweeten the electorate, who um, need to be sweetened if they going to vote for the coalition next time around. And also there's been a lot more discussion, I think this has been polarised by Labor's policy on uh, dividend imputation uh, credits and that uh, wind back for self-managed superannuation funds. That um, The Coalition seems to be thinking that there's an opening there for them to pitch for the baby boomers. That There's a couple of media reports uh, saying that uh, Mr Turnbull and others are, are looking to sort of try to lock in that part of the electorate by giving a few more sweeteners that could be in the form of an increase in the old age pension and these sorts of things that are going on. So it'll be one that's going to be a, a pre-election sweetener, with apparently the focus being on
1: uh, on the
0: baby boomers.
1: That's interesting. That's interesting because uh, the budget will, will still be in deficit.
0: Another $64 question, if you like, because um, you know, we had the MIEFO, the Mid-Year Economic and Fiscal Outlook, released in December, so just a few months ago, and it still had the, def- uh, the budget in deficit until... Um, 2020 and then a small surplus in 2021 financial year. So we've got a deficit. We've got 12 deficits in a row. That's what will be coming out on budget night almost certainly. And then there's this debate, this discussion that is a legitimate one about, you know, whether we can afford to give them uh, these uh, this amount of uh, tax cuts and fiscal uh, stimulus to the economy, if you like, when we do have an ongoing budget deficit issue and... Um, OK, we've got the surplus pencilled in for 2021, but as we know and as we've seen for, gosh, the best part of the decade now, from you know, poor old Wayne Swan, poor old Joe Hockey, and even Scott Morrison himself, sort of promising surpluses that get derailed just through bad luck, not through economic policy as such. But, you know, if the iron ore price were to drop, say, 5 or $10 a tonne, Below what Treasury is going to assume if the coal price dips, if we get well, the the other issue is wages. If wages growth remains low, then they then all of a sudden, through no fault of the government really, we just get this budget surplus turning into a deficit, and um, you know we lock in another year or two of deficit because they've unfortunately given away too much money in the pre-election um, fight that they're trying to win.
1: So, what sort of sweeteners are we expecting?
0: Look. As, as we touched on, it, they could be focused to the to the older generations who tend to vote conservative. So they'll probably want to lock in some of those types of uh, voters. But we could also see a little bit more in terms of um, some of the state state specific uh, issues. That Queensland is a vital state for uh, the election outcome. There's ongoing concerns about some of the weakness in the northern Queensland parts of the economy. Obviously, WA is one where Labor are hoping to pick up a lot of seats and the, and the gosh, the GST distribution um, concern is still there. So we could see some money allocated to WA, not just in cash terms, but in terms of um, government projects and government uh, spending there. So it's a really interesting dynamic to see, just uh, apart from these big picture issues, tax cuts and the like, to really some state-specific or some industry-specific issues.
1: Right, but uh, but the big issue, of course, is whether the budget is in position to take these sweeteners and, uh, as you say... It might be in a position to do that because we're heading into another deficit.
0: That's right. And I, and I think this is where the credit rating agencies will be looking around too, because we do know that uh, S&P, Standard & Poor's, have got Australian sovereign rating, the AAA rating, on a negative watch. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to downgrade us uh, or downgrade the credit rating, but they've shown a large amount of um, uh, tolerance, I suppose, for this move back to a surplus that they've been saying for, well, it's about three years now that, OK, we'll give you some... Uh, leeway that the move to surplus is still on the agenda. It's very slow. Uh, Yes, there's a path to surplus that we can see and so they haven't actually downgraded the the AAA rating yet but unless there's some progress made on it, I think they're going to uh, run, their frustration's going to sort of show up at some stage and there's a risk that if we do have a a budget that does spend uh, too much, that gives away too much in tax cuts and that surplus is pushed back another few years then the rating agencies might be the ones that impart a, a little bit of a negative shock to the government um, as it leads into the election. But yeah, you know, th- th- it's not saying that it will happen. But they've just got to be careful that you know, all the cards are in the right direction. And they do bring down the budget, that even if they do give away some money in tax cuts, that the surplus is still going to be guaranteed sooner rather than later.
1: That's interesting because uh, the question is whether the electorate will buy it because all the latest figures show that uh, consumer sentiment is down uh, and part of the issue there is that uh, the issues around cost of living and wages growth, which has been going nowhere for years.
0: Oh, we've had well, we've had three or four years where wages growth in real terms—that is, the wages less the rate of inflation—is basically zero. That um, any wage increase increase has been eaten up with uh, inflation. So that's continuing at the moment too. And I think that's that's why the electorate is sort of disaffected, if you like, with the the current government. And, and um, uh, the interesting thing that it's it is a global phenomenon that wages growth around the world is very very low. Um, you know, automation, technology, these sorts of things are cited as some of the reasons for it, but here in Australia, we've got the Labor Party and the union movement in particular sort of talking more about big increases in the minimum wage, talking more about how we can have, well, gosh, these tax cuts somehow linked to wages. I don't know quite how that's going to work. But, um, uh, you know, there, there is this issue there that wages, costs of living pressures uh, are really important. And I think the electorate, um, you know, from some of the uh, polling that's done, you know, of course, everybody likes a tax cut. There's no question about that. But if it's only going to be that 5 or $10 a week, and that's coming at the cost of, you know, education and university fees going up to $100,000 for a degree. If it's through um, uh, the health system being scaled back, if it's through aged care being scaled back, well, then clearly that's not going to be what the uh, electorate wants. So, yeah, you know, we've got this question where, you know, wages, cost of living, pressures and well-being issues are all very, very important. And they'll be clearly a dominant issue as the election campaign starts to hot up later this year
1: the fundamental issue is that the government and business is selling the tax cuts on the basis of this will flow through to wages. Now, the union movement and the Labor Party is saying that's unlikely. So that's going to be an issue. What's your view about that?
0: Yeah, well, you can't force businesses to pay more. Um, that's that's the problem. Uh, uh, yeah, whatever the level of tax is, businesses are going to compete for Labor. Um, I think the missing link, this is something that I've been banging on about for a year or two, maybe more now, is that The best way to get a wage increase is not through company tax cuts or something silly like that. It's through a stronger economy. You know, we know economics still works, that the supply and demand still works, that when the economy's strong, the unemployment rate goes down. When there's uh, skill shortages or pressure on demand for labour, then wages go up. That workers can say, look, I'm not going to work for X dollars. I'll work for X dollars plus 2%, and then all of a sudden they'll get the job, and that's how wage increase. So, again, it comes back to this other point, that the economy... You know, it's muddling along, you know, the most recent GDP figures were only 2.4% for annual real GDP growth, but we could be stronger. We need to get a couple of, well, years of 3% GDP before we get this wage effect. And that's an issue that's not really being discussed at the moment, Uh, but nonetheless, it's still a very real issue for for people when they're struggling to, you know, keep up their uh, spending patterns and uh, they're confronting this uh, flatness or even declining wage growth.
1: Well, the other issue, too, the other fundamental issue, too, is that uh, the Reserve Bank has uh, now gone for its longest period in history keeping interest rates uh, as they are, and they haven't been cutting it. And uh, the prospect of the interest rates being cut is really a 2019 story. What's your view about that?
0: Yeah, look, I think they should have cut already. Yeah, you know, we've got inflation below target and, you know, some of these economic issues that we've already discussed. They could have cut, could have... Um uh, stimulated the economy and, and got inflation back to target. So le- uh, nonetheless, they've got this concern about housing, house prices, uh, household debt issues, and that's probably why they haven't done it. Now, the, the, we have to wait and see just how stimulatory the budget might be before we can perhaps think about the timing of any RBA interest rate move. But at the end of the day, if as looks possible, if not probable, that if the economy continues just to to do OK without being strong, Inflation remains below target. If wages growth re- growth remains relatively low, then it's not impossible to think of a scenario where later this year, particularly with house prices now falling, that you get a scenario where the RBA takes a step back, says, "Look, we can afford to afford to tweak interest rates a little lower, but and not so for, much for the sake of housing or the consumer side. It's more for business investment. You know, to get." The business sector investing and kicking the economy along, you know, because business investment does rely on low interest rates as well as uh, profitability and strong economy. So they could do it for those sorts of reasons while keeping a, you know, a regulatory control on the lending for investment dwellings, for example.
1: So in summary, you would say that this budget with its giveaways is going to spark a whole lot of political debate about whether we can afford it and uh, whether the government's heading in the right direction.
0: Indeed, I think that's the issue. Can we afford it? Are there better uses for the money? Because they're big ticket items. Uh, it's going to be costing the budget yeah, many, many tens of billions of dollars. Um, and then there's this question of how are people feeling? Are they actually genuinely being squeezed through real wages growth, flat or falling? Is there something better that can be done? And of course the demographics of an ageing population demand that more money needs to be spent on the health. And with the Uh, millennials and young people still wanting to be educated and their parents wanting to educate them. Yeah, there's this discussion about are we we spending the right amount of money on on kindergarten to university? So that whole education spectrum will get a lot of attention in the election, I'm sure.
1: Well, Stephen Coolis, it's always a delight talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. So what's happening in the news? Well, after the worst three months of global stocks in more than two years, the second quarter has started on the back foot with trade tensions festering and technology shares getting slammed. Stocks broke key technical levels. This week saw the S&P 500 closing below its 200-day move average, moving average for the first time since June 2016, and the stock's Europe 600 index headed for its first decline in four days. Strategists say the reasons for a sell-off are piling up, not helped by tensions surrounding Facebook, and US President Donald Trump getting stuck into Amazon. Investors are also jittery about the looming trade war, with China imposing new tariffs on meat, fruit and other products from the US as retaliation for American duties. And the US has responded by imposing tariffs on a range of Chinese-made products worth about $50 billion, focusing on high-tech products while seeking to minimise the impact on US consumers. Now the statement released by the Chinese Finance Ministry on April the 1st is in response to the tariffs approved by President Donald Trump on steel and aluminium. China's Customs Tariff Commission has increased the tariff on pork products and aluminium scrap by 25% and 15% on 120 other imported US commodities, ranging from almonds to apples and berries. All up, 128 kinds of US products have been hit by the new tariffs. Now, significantly, the tariffs could have an impact on American ranchers and farmers, many of whom came from regions which voted for Donald Trump in the 2016 election. US farmers shipped nearly $20 billion worth of goods to China in 2017. And China is a number three market for the American pork industry, which sold $1.1 billion in products. Other interesting piece of news is a Disney has expressed interest in buying Sky News in a deal that could help Rupert Murdoch push through his takeover of the satellite broadcaster. Murdoch's bid for Sky has been put on hold amid British regulators' concerns that obtaining the 61% of the satellite broadcaster he doesn't already own will give him too much influence over UK news media. Now, separating Sky's news channel could allow those concerns. The Murdoch family already controls News UK, the owner of the Times of London, The Sun and the TalkSport radio station. Now, Disney is working on its own $66 billion takeover of most of Murdoch's 21st Century Fox, including Sky. Fox said Disney wanted Sky News. Whether or not Disney's proposed acquisition of 21st Century Fox proceeds. Now to Australia. And the Reserve Bank has broken the record for keeping interest rates on hold. Australia's official interest rate has been kept on hold at the record low level of 1.5%, and that is the 18th consecutive board meeting where the RBA has not budged from its emergency setting. And it marks the longest stint without rates changing since the RBA became independent from Federal Treasury that was set between January 1995 and July 1996. The RBA last moved rates in August 2016 with a 0.25 percentage point cut. And despite many economists believing the RBA had lost some conviction in its GDP growth forecasts, the decision was widely expected. Futures markets had priced in a 0% chance of any change. Now, the ANZ Australian Job Advertisement Series remained flat at 0% in March, after easing slightly in February down 0.4%. Now, the number of job ads currently sits at 11.5% higher than a year ago, and in trend terms, job ads were up. 0.8% in March, edging down from a 0.9% rise in the previous month. Australian retail sales rebounded in February as shoppers spent on cafes, clothing and household goods. It's a tentative sign that consumers might be coming out of the doldrums and contributing to economic growth. Wednesday's data from the ABS showed retail sales climbing 0.6% in February, beating expectations of a 0.3% rise. And that followed an upwardly revised 0.2% gain in, in January. If sales for March hold up as well, it would suggest consumer spending likely added to growth last quarter, and household consumption accounts for around 57% of Australia's annual output. Now, home prices across Australia's major cities slipped for a sixth straight month in March as tighter lending rules clamped down on investment demand in Sydney and Melbourne, although some other centres fared better. Property consultant CoreLogic said its index of home prices for the combined capital cities slipped 0.2% in March after it fell 0.3% in February. Annual growth in prices slowed to just 0.8%. That's down from 2% in February and down from 10.5% in the middle of 2017. And prices in Sydney dropped 0.3% in March leaving values down 2.1% for the year and values had been surging at more than 20% at the peak of the boom. Melbourne also saw a dip of 0.2% in the month, although annual growth in that city stayed positive at 5.3%. Now, West Farmers could reduce the cost of exiting the British home improvement market by as much as $1 billion if it confined a buyer for the home-based chain rather than shutting it down. West Farmers has confirmed it is working with investment bank Lazard to review options for Bunnings, UK and Ireland, including finding buyers for the loss-making home-based chain it bought for $700 million in January 2016. Now, American oil and gas investor Harbour Energy has made another offer for local oil and gas company Santos. The bid is valued at $6.50 a share. That's a 30% premium to which its shares were trading last week. And that values Santos at $13.5 billion. And it's conditional on due diligence and funding. Now, Santos has given Harbour Energy access to its data room. The offer comes after the two companies were locked in talks over the Easter period. It's the second time Harbour has approached Santos. It comes after its indicative $4.55 a share offer six months ago. And Santos rejected that offer, saying it was undervalued the company and was uncertain. Now, Alinta Energy has emerged as a possible buyer for the ageing Liddell coal-fired power station in a move that would extend its life for seven years, helping to prevent the looming risk of more blackouts on Australia's east coast. Owner AGL is now under renewed pressure to sell the Hunter Valley power station, which was due to close in 2022. Alinta Energy will make a formal approach to AGL to buy the plant and extend its life beyond the planned closure for seven years. Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull reportedly phoned AGL chairman Graham Hunt, about the possibility of Alinta Energy taking ownership. And his behind-the-scenes intervention was made public after a group of pro-coal coalition backbenchers announced their intention to lobby publicly for the government to build a new coal-fired power station. Energy Australia has sealed a $205 million deal to buy two gas power stations from IFM investors, overcoming hitches earlier in the sales process and reducing the likelihood it will build a new gas generator in Victoria. The deal hands ownership of about 950 megawatts of generation capacity, split between two sites in Victoria to Hong Kong-owned EA, or Energy Energy Australia, which buys all the output from the generators through a long-term purchase contract. Now, Greens leader Richard Natale has put forward a radical proposal for a publicly-owned people's bank to give affordable services and inject real competition into the sector, in an appeal pitch to the Greens' base and voters on Labor's left, De Natale told the National Press Club that the Reserve Bank of Australia could offer banking services to the Australian public online via Australia Post branches and other contracted organisations. De Natale's address comes in the wake of the Greens' failure to win the Batman by-election after a campaign that saw damaging divisions among their local members. The People's Bank policy taps into widespread community criticism of the banks, which can only be reinforced by the damaging material coming from hearings of... the Royal Commission into the misconduct in the banking superannuation and financial services industry that's now running. And under the People's Bank proposal, homeowners would be able to borrow up to 60% of the value of their property directly from the RBA. And with a minimum interest rates of 3% plus 0.5% administration charge, De Natale says it would always deliver loans that householders could pay off faster and more cheaply compared with the present offerings from the big banks. And finally, The company behind the National Broadband Network, NBN Co., has announced its Chief Executive Officer, Bill Morrow, will step down this year. Mr Morrow has been in the role since April 2014, and he said it was the right time to leave. Last October, he told Four Corners the fast pace of a rollout was leading to compromises and that, in his words, turned his stomach the customers were getting left behind. He also admitted complaints about the rollout were still too high last year, promising they would fix it in three to six months. He said M B N Co. was on track to eventually make a financial return. The company's latest corporate plan says 60, 80% of the population will be able to connect to the M B N by the end of this year. And that's it for this week. And next week, we've got a terrific interview with a guy called Vivek Ayer, who runs a company called Appirition, which manages augmented reality for Australian businesses. In the meantime, you can tune in to us on Twitter at Z or on Facebook. Take care and I look forward to talking to you next week. It's that time of
0: the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues